Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Retirement Puzzle brought to you by the Monash Center for Financial Studies. I'm Umul Rudba, a researcher at MCFS and one of the co-hosts of the podcast, where we explore the current and critical trends in the pension sector and try to explain how they impact us all. In this episode, we are going to talk about equity of superannuation and age pension systems. One of the desirable features of a good retirement system is equity. There are quite a few areas within our superannuation and age pension that raise questions on how these two pillars treat the retirees in different income groups. To talk about all these issues related to equity and how to address them, today we have with us Dr. Stephen King. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Amal. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Going well, thanks. Stephen is a commissioner at the Productivity Commission and has been deeply involved in regulatory issues throughout his career. Stephen was a member of the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, where he chaired the Margers Review Committee. He is a member of the Academy of Social Sciences in Australia and a lay member of the High Court of New Zealand. Stephen also has a very successful academic career. Before joining the Productivity Commission in 2016, he was a professor of economics at Monash University, as well as dean of the Faculty of Business and Economics. He has a PhD in economics from Harvard and is widely published in international academic journals. Thanks for joining us today, Stephen. Let me start with the Retirement Income Review. It is an outcome of the recommendation made by the Productivity Commission. Do you find any part of the review surprising or somewhat unexpected? Okay, so let, let, let's start off this by saying, well, what, what was the point of a retirement income review? So really, the Productivity Commission recommended that review to fill an important information gap uh, for policy. Um, and if you think where we're sitting with superannuation, We've had a lot of concentration on the saving side, if I can put it that way, over the last 20 or so years. Um, but as more people are retiring and they're accessing their superannuation savings, so these savings are becoming more important as part of uh, people's retirement, uh, we really need to start asking questions about that post-retirement drawdown phase of superannuation. So the Retirement Income Review is aimed to help fill in the details uh, for government about that post-retirement period of superannuation. Um, second thing before I say what they found or look at what they found is to remember the context here. So, uh, and this is uh, clear in the terms of reference for the retirement income review, that there are three pillars of Australia's retirement income system um, and we can't ignore any of those. So that they're interlinked. So when we're looking at the retirement income review and their recommend or their findings, we need to keep those three elements in mind. So um, did I find anything particularly surprising? Uh, no. Um, they suggest, for example, that there needs to be a clear objective for superannuation system. That, that's completely in line with what the Productivity Commission uh, found in our pre-retirement uh, analysis. Uh, they note that the system is complex and individuals have trouble understanding the system. Again, again that's pretty clear. Uh, they note the interactions between the different parts of a retirement system, um, so the importance of the age, pension, and, and those three pillars that I've already mentioned. Um, so I don't think that 
there were surprising findings. Of course, there were some controversial findings and some of the findings have been disputed. Um, perhaps the, the most obvious one is the Retirement Income Review's claim uh, that most retirees leave the bulk of their wealth uh, that they had at retirement as a bequest. So the superannuation industry very quickly responded, uh, noting that when considering retirement income accounts held through superannuation, um, the retirement income reviews claim may be true in nominal terms, but when you adjust for inflation, uh, the superannuation industry claims that, 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 in fact, people do draw down uh, their superannuation accounts and, in fact, they point out that the minimum annual withdrawal limits uh, put in place by legislation effectively mean they have to draw down those accounts in uh, real terms. So the superannuation industry said, well, we don't quite agree with the retirement income review on this. Um, my view, take on that, by the way, uh, is that they sort of seem to be comparing a bit of apples and oranges. They can both be true. Uh, the retirement income review looked at uh, retirees' wealth, uh, the superannuation industry came back and said, well, we're going to look at part of that wealth, which is your superannuation accounts. And, and of course, the big elephant in the room uh, when you just look at your retirement income account is that you're leaving out the wealth in the family home. And, and capital appreciation in family homes uh, can offset any real reduction in superannuation balances. So so both, both can be true. Um, but we've got to make sure that in the debate we're, we're not comparing apples with oranges. Um, another slightly controversial finding they had was uh, that we may be overshooting the trade-off between saving and consumption while working uh, versus in retirement. And the Retirement Income Review suggested that if people drew down their uh, wealth in retirement at an appropriate rate, then in fact... Uh, you could see the increases in compulsory superannuation, um, pushing people to have too little saving, uh, sorry, too little consumption during their working life and in a sense too much in retirement. So some controversial stuff, um, but not surprising stuff. Uh, yes, there were some very heated discussion on these issues after the review came out. Uh, now, let's talk about our superannuation guarantee and how it may or may not generate inequality. So, one set of opinions uh, say that uh, the superannuation guarantee should be increased to 12% because retirees don't have enough savings. On the other hand, the Retirement Income Review finds that increasing it to 12% would hurt the low-income earners as it would slow down the wage growth and lower their take-home income. So one possible way to not worsen their standard of living during the working age is to keep the superannuation guarantee rate fixed at 9.5% for these low-income earners and increase it gradually to 12% for others. So do you think uh, it is feasible to have such a tiered system? And what would be the implications of such a system for the middle and high income earners? Will it make them have a more comfortable retirement without hurting them during their working age? Yeah, so what, let's, let's think about those middle income earners and ask um, what is happening there when uh, 
the contribution rate goes up. There are some people um, who seem to view superannuation contributions as uh, simply an employer impost. So the idea here is, is that if you put up the superannuation uh, guarantee rate for middle-income earners, uh, their wages will stay the same. Uh, the amount their employer is putting into superannuation will go up. Uh, and so uh, they will be able to have a better retirement at no cost during their working life. Now, that's a nice view. Um, it would be great if it were true. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the evidence over the longer term and the evidence is referred to in the Retirement Income Review uh, shows that there is a trade-off. And in the absence of some sort of magic pudding economics, you would expect there to be a trade-off. So a higher superannuation guarantee rate for middle-income earners will feed through, not immediately, but will over time feed through to their wages. It's not a free trade-off that if you have higher superannuation guarantee rates for middle-income earners during their working lives, that means over time they will have less money during their working lives, albeit some more in retirement, and albeit but some of them will be able to or need to rely less on the age pension in retirement. Second thing, you focused on the those people who um, can have a more comfortable retirement because they uh, have a higher uh, uh, compulsory superannuation guarantee. So, so we're sort of now talking at the upper end of the income spectrum. Why will they have a more comfortable retirement? I agree they will, but the reason is not that the guarantee rate goes up per se because these are individuals who often have substantial private savings. The reason why they will have more income in retirement is that if the superannuation guarantee rate goes up with the current tax concessions, then they're simply able to pay less tax. So if our aim here is to say, well, we want to have a less equitable system so that we can have more tax concessions going to high income earners, then having uh, that sort of split of superannuation guarantee rate seems to be a good way to achieve that. But, but that's a very inequitable outcome. So in other words, if we're thinking about, well, yes, uh, we want some more people to have higher retirement incomes at that upper level, those who will be in the higher contribution rate level, then all we're really saying is we want the government to give these people more tax concessions so they can have a better retirement and these are generally people who have a fair bit of income in retirement anyway, and if you got rid of the tax concessions completely for them, would still have a very good retirement. They'd just be doing it through private saving. So uh, you know, I, I can't see any logic in Australia for having that sort of range of, uh, of superannuation contributions. You just gave me the perfect cue, Stephen, as my next question is on tax concession. We all know that tax policies usually have little or no effect on savings. And a recent study by MCFS also finds that the various tax incentives provided under our super system have an insignificant impact on private savings. 
the review discussed it at length, and you also mentioned it earlier, that the largest amount of government support for the rich comes from these concessional superannuation taxes. So my question to you, Stephen, is why do we still have such huge tax concessions for superannuation savings? Yeah, okay. So uh, let's again just work through through this in a a number of stages. So um, your first point was uh, the MCSF, what I said of financial studies work, uh, and work by some others asking, well, does superannuation actually increase uh, total saving? And the Retirement Income Review, as I've already mentioned, it notes that some people find it difficult to understand the benefits of saving versus immediate consumption and some compulsion uh, with or without the tax concessions could lead to increases in savings for these people. But overall, uh, as uh, the Monash Centre for Financial Studies has found, the extent of that increase in savings is at best unclear and and probably fairly small over the system as a whole. In which case, why do we give then the tax concessions or why are the tax concessions as generous as they are? As you know, the tax concessions are are in a sense a a quid pro quo for uh, your locking up savings, often in your 20s and 30s for your retirement. Uh, rather than using them for other things, such as to pay down a home mortgage. Um, That may or may not be a good thing, by the way. Uh, As the Retirement Income Review notes, for many of those middle-income earners, um, we're probably at a point where, in a sense, they've got too little consumption. They're they're, they're not paying enough down their house. They're not not having enough consumption during their working life. So to have a tax incentive that pushes people towards having more uh, retirement consumption and less consumption during their working life may not be a good thing for those individuals. But if we have the tax concessions in there, in the superannuation system, and they are generous, uh, there's been research done to show that it is the most tax-effective way of saving, more so than even the family home, is to put money into superannuation. We then have to ask, well, who are the big beneficiaries of these tax concessions? And the big beneficiaries at the moment of these tax concessions are those individuals who have very high superannuation balances um, because the tax concessions uh, largely don't cut out. Now, that's that's changed a bit. There's certainly been some changes to the amount of money that you can put in super, superannuation during your working life to try and limit those top-end tax concessions. There's uh, certainly been uh, uh, changes to um, the amount that uh, you can put in an allocated pension post-retirement to, again, try and uh, limit the tax concessions that are being offered. But both those pre-retirement and those post-retirement tax concessions are huge benefits for people who actually don't need them in retirement. And as I've already mentioned, and the Retirement Income Review mentions, they're a large cost. So really what the debate about those tax concessions needs to be is how do we reform them so that if we feel there needs to be that compensation for low and middle income earners, we're forcing them to save more than they would otherwise do um, for their retirement, but they get the tax concessions. But the tax concessions aren't being provided to people 
for example, as referred to in the Retirement Income Review, who have $5 million or more in superannuation. Uh, how, do, how do we actually get that balance better is really the question around tax concessions. The last issue, our age pension. Its tapering mechanism generates another source of inequality. Some experts have shown that a lower asset tapering threshold would reduce some of the disparity, but it would also raise the cost of age pension as it would make more people in the middle eligible for a higher age pension. So, Stephen, what is your opinion on this? I mean, is there any other way to reduce this inequality? Okay. So, I mean, so one already that I, I mentioned not is related to the superannuation tax concessions on the inequality. But if we're thinking about the age pension and the tapering system there, um, any social welfare net needs some form of tapering. There needs to be some way that uh, you can say, well, you have more assets, you have more income, so you will receive less of the age pension. Um, and there's always a trade-off in there. Um, you know, you could make the age pension universal. Um, that would increase its cost. It would mean that very rich people get the age pension as well as people who uh, are poor and don't have enough uh, retirement savings. I'm not sure that's where we want to go. That, that sounds like a rather expensive policy um, and certainly not more equitable. So some form of tapering is needed so that we best target the age pension to those who need it. The big issue when we're looking at the asset test, though, for um, the age pension comes back to the family home. And the family home, as I mentioned earlier on, the, the most effective tax-effective method of saving in Australia, as I understand it, is superannuation. The second most effective is through a family home. Uh, the family home uh, is exempt from many asset tests, um, it's exempt from any capital gains tax when it's sold. Um, and Australians have a long-term love affair with having rather large houses, uh, rather large expensive houses. But again, that's, you know, that is a significant gain to those most wealthy Australians. So again, what we may need to think of, and governments are already thinking of this, they're already moving down this track, is how to better deal with the family home when we're looking at assets tests for things like the age pension. Yes, this is another source of inequality within our age pension system, how it treats the homeowners and the renters. Of course, the asset test threshold is higher for renters, but the income generated from those additional assets is not enough for paying the rent. So let me ask you, Stephen, why the need to treat residential property differently? Why cannot we treat it as any other assets in determining the retiree's age pension eligibility or the amount he or she is entitled to? Okay, so to, two points there. First off, yeah, you correctly point out the Retirement Income Review notes the, the big disparity between those who retire with their own home and those who are renting in retirement. And those who are renting in retirement are much more likely to be worse off than those who own their own homes. So, that, so it's, a, it's a direct equity question. Um, what's the problem with just treating the family home like any other asset? Well, there's two elements to that. One, as I've already noted, it's a big, lumpy, illiquid asset. So the first problem with just simply adding the family home to the asset base is to say, how do we deal with that liquidity problem? And that's where products like reverse mortgages have been thought about. They haven't been particularly popular. 
Um, so we need to really understand and ask why haven't they been popular? Why have people who have been in that situation where they've had uh, substantial wealth tied up in the family home, why have they been reluctant to access that uh, as a form of liquidity, as a form of income, even in situations where they rely almost entirely on the age pension and could have uh, a much more comfortable retirement if they were able to access the family home. So, so that really brings me to the second problem of just adding it. Um, the family home in Australia, over a long period of time, it's been viewed as sort of sacrosanct. That you know, this is something that uh, home ownership, uh, being able to bring up your family in your family home, being able to welcome the grandkids, and eventually peacefully dying in your family home is a, a sort of myth around Australian life. Um, many Australians do not have that luxury, but it's still a view of life that many Australians consider important. So politically, there would be problems with just saying, right, we're adding the family home to the, the assets, uh, to, the, to the wealth base for asset tests. Yes, Stephen, I agree with you. I think it's not a problem specific to Australia. I think people all over the world, they view their family home something that should not be touched. Yeah, as, as someone who is uh, still working but at the older end of the spectrum and has a ridiculously large family home which he, his wife and his cat live in, um, I can understand that. <laughs> Thank you so much, Stephen. So what are some of the questions in this space that you'd like to have answers to? Oh, <laughs> that's, a, that, that's, a, that's a large question in itself. Um, I, I think we've really touched on the two main areas. So uh, for the answers that we need and, and the areas of policy that we really need to understand more about and we need to think more about and experiment more about are the tax concessions and the family home. So uh, in some ways, I'm not telling you anything new. Most people sort of understand that the tax concessions and the family home are the two weak points of our triple-tiered system that we have. The sort of questions that I'd like, the sort of questions or the areas that I think the government should go, and, and I'll look at the tax concessions just to give an example. The government has slowly reduced uh, some of those tax concessions for individuals with very high superannuation balances. But maybe we need to ask, why don't we go further? Why, for example, let, let's suppose that as a society we consider, you know, for a couple with their own home, a million dollars in superannuation savings where they've received the tax concessions, that's more than enough for the vast majority of people to have an, an appropriate retirement. If, as a society, we consider that reasonable, we then have to ask ourselves, well, once a couple with a family home reaches that million dollars with the tax concessions and the benefits they've received, why should they receive any further tax concessions? Of course, what then? why should they be forced to have more superannuation savings as well. So is it the case that we should be thinking about what are the appropriate levels of superannuation balance? There's a whole range of questions in there, but I think they're all important questions that we need to ask and answer. Thanks a lot, Stephen, for being with us today. From today's episode, we learned that there are many parts of our retirement system that generate inequality. Some of these policies that benefit the rich, for example, the tax concessions during the accumulation phase, 
are required to encourage us to save for retirement and others, for example, the age pension tries to undo some of that inequality. The system is complex and attempts to make it more equitable might add to its complexity. So there are trade-offs that we need to consider and we need more research in this space how those trade-offs work. Thank you for listening to the Retirement Puzzle from Monash Center for Financial Studies. If you have enjoyed it, please tell your colleagues and friends about us. You can subscribe to our show anywhere you listen to podcasts and don't forget to leave us a review. If you want to collaborate with us on retirement-related issues, please get in touch at mcfsinfo at monash.edu.